0: Welcome back to New Books in the American West. I'm Stephen Hausman, visiting instructor at the University of Pittsburgh and your host for today's interview. I'm pleased to be speaking today with Noe Noe Silva, professor of indigenous politics at the University of Hawaii. Dr. Silva is previously the author of the much-lauded Aloha Betrayed, Native Hawaiian Resistance to American Colonialism, which came out in 2004. And today, we're discussing her newest book, The Power of the Steel-Tipped Pen, Reconstructing Native Hawaiian Intellectual History, which came out with Duke University Press just last year. Welcome to the New Books Network, Noe Noe.
1: Well, thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate the invitation.
0: I'd like to begin, as we like to do on this podcast, by hearing a little bit about yourself. So, can you tell us about your academic background and about how you became interested in Native Hawaiian history and the history of anti-colonialism?
1: Um, sure. I um, I'm Kanaka Hawai'i. I'm Hawaiian and born in in Hawaii, but raised in California, and I uh, came back home. Uh, in my early 30s and started to study the Hawaiian language. And that's what started my whole um, journey. Um, I uh, got a BA in Hawaiian language um, at the advanced age of 37. Mm-hmm. And then I went on from there. Um, I really just wanted to study the language itself. But There were no graduate programs in Hawaiian language at that time. And even today, there's only MA degree programs in our language. There's no PhD specifically in Hawaiian. So I began, you know, it began to dawn on me that this was actually a result of our political and colonial history. And so I went to get my PhD in the UH Manoa political science department, which is not a typical political science department. Um, it's very much um, uh, post-colonial studies, cultural studies, feminist theory, that kind of a department. Um, and it was there that I began to learn the tools of analysis and to learn about colonialism, anti-colonialism, and post-colonialism. Uh, my advisor was Dean Neubauer, uh, who was a policy uh, professor um, for the uh, basically state of Hawaii and American politics policy person, um, and his specialty is health politics and globalization. So there was nobody there to really help me, but my department um, has an ethos of Um, helping students do what they want to do, even if there's no professor there that's a specialist in that particular field. And in fact, no one in the world was a specialist in this particular field at that Hmm. time. Uh, So I, yeah, I was able to write my dissertation rewriting um, the history of resistance among Kanaka uh, to the United States. Um, And that was my... That was my Ph.D. dissertation, which then several years later became the basis uh, for Aloha B-Trade. I started out, my goal was to become a professor of Hawaiian language, which I did do. So as soon as I finished my Ph.D., I got a tenure track job in uh, the Department of Hawaiian Language. Uh, But... A year and a half later, I was recruited to become a professor in the department in which I had gotten my PhD, uh, the Department of Political Science. Uh, So I did end up moving, although I I am what's called cooperating faculty with the Department of, it's called the Center for Hawaiian Language now. So I still teach uh, advanced courses and graduate courses in Hawaiian language as well.
0: And how did you come to the topic of the book we're talking about today? What got you interested in questions surrounding Hawaiian intellectual history and Native Hawaiian literary culture?
1: Well, I've always been interested in the literature. Um, my, you know, my first love is the language, and literature is, um, you know, uh, one of the fullest expressions of the language of any language mm-hmm. um, in writing. Um, and well, after Aloha Betrayed. Um, I thought, well, what is the best thing for me to put my attention to now? What needs to be done? What does our community need to hear? Um, and what can I, as a person who has the kind of training that I have and the fluency in reading Hawaiian, what can, you know, what do people need to know? And I thought about how we grow up. Um, And because of the loss of the language, we don't know that we have ancestors who were intellectuals. We don't know that we have ancestors who are wonderful writers. Kids still grow up in Hawaii having no idea that their ancestors um, did anything like that. And so that was the original impetus for writing a book like this.
0: I want to start our interview today with a couple questions that are just a little bit outside the norm from the type of questions that are usually asked on the New Books Network. One is uh, sort of aesthetic, I guess you could say, and one's historiographical. So first, can you tell us maybe a little bit about the title? And I know that authors don't always necessarily have a lot of say in what their books get titled, but the power of the steel-tipped pen is a very evocative phrase that I just love, and it's paired in the book with a really wonderful piece of artwork on the cover. Could you tell us a little bit about where that phrase comes from and its import?
1: Yeah, it comes directly from the Hawaiian language newspaper, so um, one of the things that they would call authors who wrote in Hawaiian was makakila Which is a steel tip, of course, referring to the tip of the fountain pen, but it's also an image of strength, right? It's like that, um, the phrase fearless speech that Foucault, um, one of Foucault's books, is titled. Um, So these writers were viewed as being able to articulate difficult, Uh, positions that other people had and to speak to power and so that's why they were called Makakila and so that means uh, steel tip so I just and and then the actual thing the the power part um, when I was thinking about the title and I remembered seeing Makakila that phrase for writers I just typed that into the um, search engine for um, one of our digit- digital- digitized newspaper sites. And the first thing that came up was an article called Kamana Okamakakila, which is the power of the steel tip. And it was about one of the newspaper editors who was retiring. It was an honoring of him. And so I thought, wow. I want to use that
0: <laughs> <laughs> it works it's it's a great phrase it really is um so we're recording this interview under the auspices of the American West channel of the New Books Network. And I'm curious about where or even whether you think the history of Native Hawaii and American colonialism in the Hawaiian islands, whether you think it fits within that subfield and in what ways is it part of the story of the West, however you want to define that region, or is it maybe a poor fit for that? I was curious what you what what your take was.
1: I really appreciate this question, Steve. The histories of Hawaii and the and the U.S. are intertwined, but knowing the history of these two places, my particular way of understanding it is that these are two different countries, Mm -hmm. and I actually don't like the history of Hawaii being subsumed under the history of the U.S. I see them as. you know, in contention and as intertwined in some ways, but not as Hawaii being under the U.S., even though politically we are under the U.S., we had a very long history, totally independent of the U.S. prior to that. So, um, no, I don't think that Hawaiian history is a subfield of the history of the American West.
0: Well, if it's okay with you, we'll keep recording the interview nonetheless.
1: <laughs> yes, because it, it's, it, um, it's related, right? But I would like to see it on a more equal basis rather than yeah.
0: subsumed. Right. So let's get into the book then. And there are a few terms that are central to the book itself and to the arguments that you make that our listeners might not be familiar with. And I'm wondering if you can explain for us. So can you explain the concepts of Aina... Of Kauna and of Mololelo for us?
1: Um, okay, I can try. So, <laughs> Aina means land. It refers to land. Um, it also, uh, the same as in or similar to English, um, when you say land, you can mean your country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it can refer to a country. Um, Aina as the environment um uh, would include um the sea and water the air and everything around us so it's a word that could well i'll leave it at that <laughs> so it's yeah. land and the whole world that we live in in our land Um. Mauna is a part of how um, language is spoken and written. It's uh, sometimes referred to as the hidden meaning of a poem or a phrase. Uh, in poetry, which is usually chanted or sung, but sometimes written, um, uh, there are several ways that um, any um, a poetry is is meant to be understood. So there are several layers. There's the literal layer, and then there's at least one or two more layers. And one of those layers can be a story that would only be understood by the people in that story or those closest to them so it's a hidden narrative within a song or a chant uh, or a poem or possibly a story or even a phrase uh, it also refers to the metaphorical and figurative uses of language um, sometimes similar to double entendres except that they can also be the reverse in English, double entendres kind of refer to, you know, using um, a, a word or, or a, a metaphor to euphemize some kind of naughty meaning. <laughs> but sometimes in Hawaiian, it's the reverse, which is hilarious. So you have the naughty meaning meaning on top, but it really means something innocent um, or Anyway, those are value judgments
0: <laughs> that maybe don't apply. That's, a, that's, a, um, that's an interesting idea, though. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and then mo'olelo is a word that simply means narrative. It's a succession of talk. So mo'o is a succession. Olelo is talk or speech or language. And so it describes anything. It's our word for history, literature, um, the minutes of a meeting, um, any kind of a narrative.
0: Okay. So you begin the book by making your case for recovering Native Hawaiian intellectual history. Um, Can you tell us why so much has been lost and what you hope will come from reconstructing this intellectual tradition? Yes, thank you. What a great question.
1: So the main thing is that here in Hawaii, like many, many other, if not most, uh, native places. Um, the colonial, um, actors and eventual structure, uh, replaced the native language with the colonial language. So in Hawaii, Hawaiian was replaced with English. Um, this started earlier than the formal colonization or the formal taking of our country by the United States. Um, it started as more cultural colonialism with, um, American missionaries, business people, um, lawyers, all those different, um, mostly Americans, but some other Europeans too coming to Hawaii. And eventually, um, they gained enough power that they were able to insist that uh, things be done in the, in the language that they were more comfortable in. And so they, you know, began influencing the government to do more and more in English and less and less in Hawaiian. And then when they um, snatched our government, then they made a law that all schools must be taught in English and then when the u s formally took over, they instituted that law in the Organic Act of nineteen hundred that all schools must be taught in English, or the degrees would not be recognized, schools would not get funding, etc. So that was the beginning of how um, we lost our language and um, and then generations started growing up unable to speak or read our language or to do so very well. And that was how um, we lost the knowledge. Uh, And the other component of this is education. You know, in the American education system, um, you're not going to be taught um, about Hawaiian literary figures or Hawaiian politicians or any other kind of writer or intellectuals. You're only going to be taught about, you know, Mark Twain and Thomas Jefferson and Ralph Waldo Emerson and all those guys. Mm -hmm.
0: In the book, you focus on, in particular, two Native Hawaiian writers and literary figures and their works, many of which appeared in both Hawaiian and English language newspapers. Can you tell us why newspapers were such critical sites for anti-colonial writing and how they can be useful for people who are trying to write against settler colonial archives in the 21st century?
1: I'm um, sure. Uh, but first of all, there wasn't much um, of these in the English language newspapers. It was uh, almost all of um and Poi Poi's writings were, were in Hawaiian-language newspaper.
0: Oh, okay. My, my mistake. I'm sorry about that. Uh,
1: there was occasional things, like when English-language newspaper actually printed an article of Kanepu's, but it was very unusual um, to do so. So, um, well, you know, uh, this is kind of a big question, why newspapers? And one is they're kind of cheap, you know, and people aren't um, wealthy, And so um, the newspapers were easier to obtain than books. And also the publishing houses weren't rich either. And so it was much easier to print a newspaper on a weekly basis than it was to um, compile, edit, and print books. Some of this is speculation on my part too, though. I haven't actually researched that aspect of it completely. But I can tell you that there were so many newspapers that, and you can tell from reading the book, uh, that in certain periods, especially periods of contention, there might be 10 or 12 Hawaiian language newspapers being published at any one time in our little Mm -hmm. country of 100,000 people.
0: And a lot of newspapers, it seemed like they, they would open up and close all the time. There were constantly new yeah. newspapers, it seemed like, being being printed on the islands as well.
1: Right. And so there were always, it's really common to see, you know, these notices from desperate editors saying, would you please pay for your prescription or we're going <laughs> to go out of business?
0: Come yeah. on, people. <laughs> So let's talk about these two writers then. Can you tell us first about Joseph Kanapuu? Who was he and why is he so important to uh, 19th century Hawaiian literature and thought? Okay, so Joseph
1: Kanapuu is a super interesting character in my um, estimation. Um, He was born born and raised in remote areas of the island of Molokai. He was born in Calavao, which is a very small town on the peninsula that eventually became the quarantine um, residence area for people uh, with Hansen's disease. Um, and then he was raised in Halaba Valley, which is very sparsely um, populated, and then went to the mission school um, a ways away, actually quite a so short distance now, but back in the day, it would have been a long distance for him to travel to go to school in a place called Kalua'aha. But he was only there for a couple of years. He started school when he was twelve, and then when um, you know when he got to high school age, um, many of his cohorts went off to the high school at Lahaina Luna on Maui, but he didn't get to go. So that was the end of his formal schooling, um, and then. He was self educated after that. And then, as a young adult, he moved to O'ahu and was asked by the community he lived in to become a school teacher. And the, apparently, this is because it was very um, evident to everybody around him that he was very well educated. And so, they wanted him to be a school teacher in their community. So he did that, and he remained a school teacher um, until he retired in, in, in various schools on Oahu. So he started writing in about 1855. Um, his writings were sort of educational. There were things like, you know, what parents should teach their children, things like that. Um, and then later he started to write literature. And the reason why... Um, I think he's there's a couple of reasons why he's so important. One is that he's one of the first people to urge everybody else to save all their copies of the newspapers. So he's a historical actor in that, that um, in recognizing that whole runs of newspapers needed to be saved for future generations, he affected our ability to know about him and everybody else (laughs) during his time. So I'm very grateful uh, to him for that. Uh, Another thing is that the um, several versions of stories from the oral tradition, epic stories from the oral tradition uh, that he wrote were Molokai versions, and those are rare. We don't have very many Molokai versions of stories. And so that was a big contribution. Uh, There's other things, other aspects as well. (laughs)
0: Um, You also describe how Kanapu'u's work highlights Aloha Aina. Can you tell us what that is and why his work is so exemplary of the concept?
1: Oh, yes, thanks. Um, Aloha Aina is, um, the words mean um, love of the land. uh, And that is, there are many different sort of aspects of that. There's... um, Our Hawaiians' familial relationship with the land and all of the beings, animate or inanimate, human and non-human, all of these elements in the land. The way American Indians call it all our relations (laughs) in English. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have familial and spiritual relationships with all of the native plants, animals, rocks. Streams, all of that. Um, and so that's Aloha Aina. And then there's also Aloha Aina refers to our governing ourselves. And so it's an anti colonial phrase as well. Um, Kane Pu'u paid a lot of attention to the Aina. Um, he wrote several works of um, geographical description of places. One was a five part um, description of the island of Molokai, which unfortunately we only have three parts of that survived. Um, and he wrote also uh, shorter ones uh, for a place, a couple places on Kauai, and then one um, valley here on Oahu called. Alola, where he lived. Um, So, and in his literature, he also describes um, these uh, relationships with the land and the people and the non-human people on the land. So it's those kinds of things that I think exemplify Aloha Aina in his writing.
0: Let's talk a bit about the other writer that you cover in depth in the book, Joseph Mokuohai Poe. Um, and as you say in the book, he's somewhat more well-known um, mm-hmm. to, to scholars of, of the islands and of the Hawaiian intellectual tradition. Can you tell us about him and what his role was in Hawaiian politics at the end of the 19th century? Sure.
1: Um, and he lived until 1913, so he had a political career uh, into the first decade of the... Um, 20th century as well. So he was born in um, around 1852, if I remember correctly, um, in Kohala on the island of Hawaii. Uh, The family moved to Oahu when he was a child, and he was educated in uh, primary and secondary schools on Oahu, one of which was Catholic seminary. And there he learned Latin and probably Greek. Um, I've actually um, attended a a seminary, not for religious purposes, but just sort of incidentally. And they always teach Greek. So I think he knew Greek as well. Um, He also learned French and uh, English very well. So he was multilingual. Um, He started out. As a school teacher, quickly realized that was not what he was meant to do and then started studying law um, and uh, eventually became licensed to practice law in every court in the kingdom up to including the Supreme Court. Um, and then he started writing. Uh, he started writing in the 1870s. And for a brief moment, he and Kanepu'u wrote in the same newspaper, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Kanepu'u probably being an old man and um, Poi Poi being a young man at that time. So Poi Poi uh, started with translations because he knew all those languages. Um, but then later um, began to write other things. He was really interested in... Um, making sure that the ordinary person who was monolingual in Hawaiian understood what was happening with the law, Uh, because so much of the law was being published only in English. Even in um, late 19th century Hawaii, a lot of law was being published only in English. And so people were expected to obey the law without ever having any way to even read what the law was. So he took it upon himself to um, translate laws into Hawaiian and to explain them uh, in various writings that he did. And he kept that up until the end of his career. And then later on, he began to write um, very, very important mo'olelo. He has a pen name that he used for mo'olelo that were authored from various sources, which, um, you know, he would receive a partial manuscript or a manuscript that needed to be edited and filled in, or he might receive a manuscript on the same story from a couple different people. And then he, um, weave it into one. And I'm, I'm kind of um, speculating a little bit there on the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so he had a, uh, a pseudonym for this, um, this type of writing that he did called, uh, Ho'ulu Mahiehie, and Ho'ulu ma hie hie stories are some of the most beautiful and elaborate um, Hawaiian that we have examples of. It's just, I call him the Hawaiian Shakespeare, <laughs> um, and that uh, deserves more study. But he has others that he um, he signed with his own name, and those are also wonderful examples um, of literature. Um, and, uh, yeah. So he wrote a lot of that as well.
0: And one of those, um, among the the many that you describe in the book, was um, a, a history of the islands called Ka Moolelo Hawaii. Um, and as you say in the book, Poe Poe was committed to teaching younger Hawaiians about their people's past. Can you tell us a little bit about his work as a as historian of the islands and why this work in particular is so important to the Native Hawaiian intellectual tradition?
1: Sure. So what he did in Moolelo Hawaii, Kahiko, which is kind of means ancient history of Hawaii, he he looks at all the previously written versions, uh, including the well-known ones of David Malo and uh, Samuel Kamako. He's reading the old newspapers and looking at all the old genealogies. And then he's retells the stories and he does so as a scholar so he analyzes it like is it is this possible or why would this person write this this particular way and he would compare them you know so and so says this but this other person wrote this Um, and he doesn't do it with the in the sense of trying to come up with you know one true story but just as a way of presenting you know, the wealth of variation that we have to the readers. So we get a lot of the um, genealogies, which are hugely important to not only Hawaiians, but um, a lot of people in the Oceania region we're genealogy-minded people. Um, and then he also shows how stories are weaved into the Genealogies, um, some are origin stories. Um, so those are those are really Im- important uh, to us, and the way that um, Poi Poi analyzes them are important. One of the things he did at the time was um, take one of the royal genealogies called uh, He Kumulipo, and there's a part in the middle where it tells two different branches. Um, and so instead of seeing it as linear, because um, these two different branches happen at the same time and then end up as one branch of the genealogy. But that's hard to tell if you're just reading it linearly because everything else is linear in it. So on the yeah. page in the newspaper, he puts them side by side so that people can see these happened at the same time so it was that was really helpful to his readers at the time and to people today uh, and there's just there's just so much in there it's just so um rich uh with detail of what our ancestors thought um about how to do things um about how to govern what's good governance what's um, what's dictatorial and therefore evil <laughs> things like that
0: I'm curious what drew you to studying these two thinkers and writers in conjunction with one another because as you say in the book Kanapuu is a, a relatively obscure figure at least not someone that um, has been written about extensively in the past whereas Poe Poe is more well known so what drew you to looking at the two of, of these two in particular
1: well, Kanipu'u, um as I mentioned, he was um, the um, one of the first people to urge other people to save their newspapers. And I am so grateful to whoever did save the newspapers, and we know who some of them are, and others, we don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Queen Lili'uokalani was one of them, and we can see traces of her handwriting on some of the images of the newspapers where when her power of attorney to was published in the Hawaiian language newspaper, she wrote on the paper, my power of attorney. And you can still see that on the microfilm and the digitized version. So we know that that was her copy of the newspaper that got preserved. But Kanipuu, the other thing that really got me and other people, and you'll see this same quote in Ku'u Aloha Manavanui's Nui's um, book. And we, we were undergrads and graduate students together in several um, courses. And in my memory, we came across this together. But in her her memory, she came across it by herself. So I don't know. <laughs> we have different <laughs> memories of it. But we both came up with the same quote. So Kanipuu is um, working on the... Um, in this publishing group that's publishing the very first Hawaiian language newspaper that's controlled by Hawaiians and the writers and most of the editors are Hawaiian. They're publishing the very first version of the story of Hi'iaka, who's the youngest sister of Pele the Volcano. And um, so in this epic, as in, well, more more in this epic than any other It's based on a series of chants, these long chants, some of which are um, hula as well. So apparently the editors were cutting down some of these chants and not publishing the whole uh, chants because of the, uh, the space it was taking up in the newspaper. So Kanepu wrote this letter to the editor that was published on the front page of the paper that said, um, you need to publish the, the all of the chants because in the future, we're not going to be here. And then it's interesting, he says, the mother of the author, um, kapihe Nui, will, won't be here forever. She'll be gone. And the um, generations of Hawaiians, this was in 1862, he wrote. The generations of Hawaiians in 1870, 1880, 1890, and 1990 are going to want these chants, and how will they get them? And so it was in the 1990s that Ku'aloha and I read this letter and thought, oh my God, he saw us. (laughs) He anticipated our need and desire for this literature. Um, and that endeared me to him, you know, and so I started to collect all the different things that he wrote. And as I started reading the different mo'olelo, I realized people should know uh, who this man was and should read what he wrote. And that's how I chose him. Um, Poi Poi was a different story. When I was an undergraduate in my very last course that I ever took, uh, Professor Rubelite Kavana Johnson assigned me to do a biography of Korokoi. So she gave everybody in the class a different newspaper editor to research and um, taught us how to research bi- biographic information going to the different archives and how to look in the paper for biographical information. So uh, I compiled a biography of him. This, would have, this was back in 1991, um, and I never forgot, you know, him. And so, and then as I went along and got further educated, further educated myself in Hawaiian literature, I started to realize how important he was. So that was how I chose him.
0: What is the legacy of these two men? Um, You've touched on this a bit, but maybe talk a little bit more about how their work um, helps to keep the Hawaiian language and Hawaiian intellectual studies alive well into the 20th and even today into the 21st centuries.
1: Sure. I mean, just the fact that the newspapers are preserved and that we're using them and reading them. I mean, it's... um well, one thing about Kanepu'u is that he was very insistent um, on the value of of writing things down and the newspapers as a way of perpetuating them into the 20th and 21st centuries and and, and further, right? So he was part of the uh, of the group that established, it was called the Ahaui Ho'opukanupepa, or the group that... Uh, the Association for Newspaper Publishing that started Hoku Okapaki Pika um, and started you know this tradition of of um, recording uh, all our moolelo, um, and so since then we've had a lot of people or quite a few students looking more at that newspaper in depth. Um, I just ushered through an MA thesis on um, the editor. Uh, or the publisher, main publisher of that paper, a man named Kauahi. So my student did her MA in Hawaiian. Uh, her name's Uilaniao. She just finished that in-depth study of how of the language of Kauahi. And I have another student working on his uh, MA thesis now, um, looking at another writer um, from a similar era. So we're getting these really in-depth studies now of our language, which we need, because we can't speak like our um, ancestors did, and we can't write like our ancestors did. Um, and I'm not saying a comprehensive week, because there's a couple of extraordinary individuals um, who, who are very excellent um, writers and speakers. But nevertheless, we need to have these studies of, um, of our, our literature. And we're able to, to do that because of the work of, of people like Hanekpu, who made sure newspapers were being published, that they were supported, that they were defended, that they were preserved. Uh, excuse me. So, um that has had a lasting impact. Um, And then um, Poi Poi is the same, but more so just because his epic writing was, Po'olumahie, he he was so prolific, Um, and Poi Poi himself, and the ways that he... um, the things that he chose and how dedicated he was um, to educating people through the means of the newspaper. And also in person. I mean, he delivered a lot of lectures to Hawaiian youth and things like that. And the other thing about Poi Poi is his dedication to the law and to translating the law. I don't think that... that um, should be downplayed at all. I think that was really important for people at the time. His politics were more complicated and he wasn't always appreciated in his time. At one point he became um, pro-annexation. So he was working for the annexation of Hawaii uh, to the U.S. and the vast majority of Hawaiians were not in favor of losing our country. (laughs) So he wasn't very popular during
0: that time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this book is... Oh, sorry, keep going. No, 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 that's out. okay. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, this book is it's, it's quite uh, intellectually very rich, and it's hard to uh, summarize or go into all the different intricacies in a, a 45-minute interview, but I'm wondering if you would, if there was one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book with, what would it be?
1: Um. You know, I guess it would be that if, if any of us from any Native group are to look into our own histories written by our own people, we are going to find uh, evidence of intellectual activity. And one of the things that's happened with Native peoples over the years of colonization is that that has really been taken away from us in the process of colonization. You know, it's, and Gugiwa Tiango says, you know, they explode a cultural bomb, you know, to, to mentally colonize us, to make us think that nobody in our past accomplished anything of any worth. And then that makes us want to distance ourselves from that past. And that's simply not true. Um, so that's the takeaway for me, for, for other um, Native people. And many other Native people are doing this. You know, it's great to see all of the um, the scholarship that's coming out from just for one example, Daniel Heath Justice, you know, documenting the intellectual heritage of the Cherokee. Uh, and there's many other examples, but that's what I would say to everyone. Look back in your own past and you will find heroes of intellectualism as well as of every other sort.
0: Could you real quick just say again the scholar that is, um, that's, that, that you mentioned is doing work on the intellectual history of the Cherokee, you cut out there just for a quick second when you were saying their name. Okay. Daniel Heath Justice. Ah, okay. We had him on the podcast a few months ago, actually.
1: Yes. So that's, that's, yeah. that's,
0: a, that's a good shout out. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that, that that point that you just made, it comes aqua- across quite well in the book as well. So it's certainly a success on that front, at least in my own estimation. Thank you. Um, so now that this book has been out for um, a little over a year now at this point, do you have another project in mind? What are you working on next?
1: Right now I'm finishing an edited volume of Mary Kavena Pukui's lesser known writings um, and unpublished writings and a couple of recordings. And I'm doing that. My co-editor is Nana Armstrong-Wassel. So that should be out in about a year and a half. Uh, by uh, Kamehameha Publishing. And then the um, next monograph I'm working on is a history of the Hawaiian language newspapers with a focus on the uh, editors and writers.
0: Excellent. Dr. Noe Noe Silva is professor of indigenous politics at the University of Hawaii. And her new book is The Power of the Steel-Tipped Pen, Reconstructing Native Hawaiian Intellectual History, which Duke University Press published just in 2017. Thank you so much for joining us today, Noe Noe. It was a lot of fun.
1: Mahalo Noe, Steve. Aloha.